quiver's full of hope. I've got the urge to walk the prairie and chase the antelope. Aspen's gold on snowcap makes the elk call me away. I can't keep my mind on working on this fine September day. I've got Nimrod neurosis, longbows on the brain. I'm an outdoor junkie through and through, hunts my middle name. My eyes are on the target, broadheads all fly true. Can't wait till I can get outside so I can fling a few. Welcome back to the Track Quest Podcast. James Orr here. And Bob Borland. What's going on, Bob? Glad to be back on the air. Yeah, me too. Good weekend we had at the banquet. The traditional archers of Oregon banquet over the weekend in Grand Ron and got to meet up with a bunch of old friends and made some new ones. Yeah, good time. Awesome. Uh, we were able to have a sit down and do a podcast with Mark Penniger. Um, we had Mark on the podcast. What did you say it was episode eleven? I don't remember for sure. Back back there away somewhere in there. Yeah, we uh, went uh, to Kodiak Island hunting Sitka blacktails with Mark on that podcast, and he takes us right back to Kodiak Island for an epic mountain goat hunt we also get to talk to uh Pinnager about mountain goats in oregon and their home range and a lot of biology stuff uh, related to mountain goats he's a biologist for is it the uh national forest yeah i believe so yes so yes. yeah he knows a lot about the goats and he gets to spend some time up in goat country doing some surveys and and all that good stuff. So we kind of, first part of it, we dive into some interesting stuff about mountain goats. And then uh, we cover his hunt up there. So it should be should be real informative for the guys that uh, haven't, you know, haven't had a chance to, to do that or won't have. I probably will never have the chance to do that, but it's definitely on the, on the bucket list someday. Those are a beautiful animal. Yeah, that'd be sweet. Someday draw a tag or something be, be a good time yeah and speaking of drawing we've got a uh we've got a drawing coming up we're doing a uh giveaway if you guys haven't heard about it we're going to be giving away some sherwood shafts that are going to be custom built by addictive archery uh andy ponce he builds some beautiful arrows and we're doing this giveaway so if you guys want to enter to win just go over to itunes or Stitcher, Podbean, leave us a review, like us uh, on Instagram, go over to uh, Addictive Archery and Sherwood Shafts and Echo Archery, give those guys a like, and we will be doing the drawing on sometime right after Valentine's Day, I believe. Yes, sir. Yeah, Andy makes some awesome arrows. I think everybody knows that. You can check them out on Instagram and so yeah, you got a heck of a good good chance to win a really nice custom dozen wood arrows if you guys go over there. It helps helps us out for sure. Yeah, and if you guys are going to be in the uh, greater Oregon, Portland metropolitan area, uh, coming up here on the I think it's the sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, and eleventh of February is the annual Sportsman Show. 
I think it's the largest sports show west of the Mississippi. And Andy from Addictive Archery will have a booth there. Um, I know Bob's going to be in the booth for several days. I'm going to try to at least make one day. So stop, stop over at Addictive Archery and say what's up. Yeah, I'll be there Wednesday, Friday, Saturday. I think I worked the other day, so we're hoping James can come up for a couple days there too. So yeah, just stop by and say hi. It'd be cool. Check out Andy's arrows and stuff. And be fun hanging out there all weekend. Yeah, and we also um, kind of some hard, hard news. I'm sure most of our listeners are, are definitely listening to uh, traditional bow hunting and wilderness podcast. Uh, Jason Sankoviak. Um, some tragic, tragic news has, uh, just, uh, hit us. Jason has lost his 14 year old son, uh, over the weekend and please, uh, everyone put your prayers and thoughts with the Sankoviak family. Um, you can send Jason a message on Instagram or Facebook and just try to keep, uh, his family in your thoughts and prayers. Uh, we're, we're very saddened by this news, and and uh, you know I I can't stop thinking about about it, and uh, you know we love you, man. Sorry, to, we're really sorry for for your loss. All right, we're ready, huh? Yeah. Welcome to the Track Quest Podcast. James Orr here, joining me as always, Bob the Bowhunter Borland. Today we've got a very special guest, second time joining us on the show, Mark Penniger. We're uh, here at the Spirit Mountain Casino attending the Traditional Archers of Oregon Banquet. And we, uh, I drug these guys up early this morning. This is our earliest podcast to date. <laughs> and I'm um, excited to have you guys here. Thank you. It's good to be with you again. So uh, in the last time we had you early on in the podcast, we dove into the Kodiak blacktail deer hunting. And since then, you've been uh, on some more adventures in Alaska, and you drew your goat tag. And um, also, you uh, are a biologist, and you study some goats, right? Well, uh, I do work with goats some in my job. So I work with the Forest Service on the Wallowa Whitman National Forest. But part of my job is... Uh, I'm a, kind of the contact for uh, bighorn sheep and mountain goats for Region 6 of the Forest Service. And Region 6 is all of Oregon and Washington. So wherever there's issues that involve National Forest System lands and either of those species, and if they need my assistance, uh, they'll call me in to assist. So, yeah, I do. I've been working with those bighorns and, and goats in addition to my regular forest duties for the last seven or eight years. So um, I know following you on social media and stuff that, you know, you go on some of these backpack and I don't know if they're surveys or observations or what you're doing up there. Maybe tell us a little bit about that, you know, in the Northeast Oregon area and maybe how uh, how long you've been observing the goats and, uh, you know, whatnot. Sure. Um, you know, right outside my office window are the Elkhorn Mountains there out of, in Baker, uh, Baker County. And that's where Oregon's largest mountain goat population is. There's a, it's not a really big mountain range, but it's got some really good habitat for goats. A lot of subalpine, very rocky terrain, uh, surrounded by forest, conifer forest. <clears throat> and um, there's probably 350 to 380 goats in that little range. 
And that's kind of the source population that Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife uses for uh, translocating to other locations when when there are suitable places to put them. Uh, Strawberry Mountains, uh, Warm Springs Indian Reservation in the in the Cascades, uh, the uh, Grand Ronde River near where the Winaha flows in. All those are places that some goats have come, come from the Elkhorns and been translocated to those. So me as a Forest Service biologist, uh, I deal mainly with habitat, but it's it's nearly impossible to manage the habitat without some close coordination with those who manage the species. So I have a good working relationship with a lot of the biologists from Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife, and they've been gracious to let me come in and help them on things like the annual uh, mountain goat survey, which is a, a foot a ground survey, um, and I also help with the captures. Occasionally we'll capture goats in there to have them moved and take samples and things from them. And so every year, uh, the biologist out of Baker, the Baker office of ODF&W, they will organize this survey where they put together usually teams of two, several teams, and we all have a, uh, a geographic area, a basin or a couple basins, and we'll hike in or horseback in or drive depending on the situation. And you set up that afternoon and do a survey for about four hours of counting all the goats you see in your survey area, recording whether they're male, female, yearlings, or kids, and you mark the locations of them on a map. And you also note that if a particular group or individual goat goes from your survey area out of sight into another one, and what time that happened. Um, that way you're not double counting goats. Because if I see a group of five go over into the next basin and that survey crew records that they had a group of five enter their basin at that that same time, you know, you're not double yeah. counting. But then the next morning uh, we'll wake up and do the exact same survey area again. And um, from that... ODF&W can get a you know an absolute minimum count, and then they can estimate what the population is based on what we know about sightability and things like that. Uh, but it's always it's it's good duty because it's you know actually looking at wildlife uh, using skills that you that you've gained over the years, and it's just more enjoyable than sitting in meetings or writing documents, <laughs> yeah, and that kind of thing. Absolutely, time in the field is definitely uh, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. So um, I imagine the uh, Rocky Mountain goat's been on your bucket list uh, for a while. I think it's on uh, most guys. And here in Oregon, we just get a handful of t- tags that are allotted to a, a lottery, no preference points, um, once in a life, once in a few people's lifetime um, type of situation. And most of us will never see it. So it seems like. I don't know, is Alaska the only really place to go, uh, or B.C.? B.C. B.C. and Alaska. Those two places combined have about 80% of the world's mountain goats. And, you know, mountain goats are unique to North America. They don't occur on any other continent. And they occur in some of the lower 48 states, uh, pretty much coastal and some interior B.C., and then mostly southeast and coastal Alaska, with some up in the Eagle River area around Anchorage, and then they've been uh, introduced to the island of Kodiak. And, uh, yeah, so, yeah, those, the, that province, B.C., and then the state of Alaska have about 80% of the goats. We estimate maybe a, between 85,000 and 115,000 goats exist, and um, only about 5,000 of those exist in all the other states down here. So the 
large majority of them exist in BC and, and Alaska. And in BC, you can draw, uh, or you can uh, hire a guide and go on a hunt. You don't have to apply for the tag and that kind of thing. Uh, in Alaska, a non-resident has to apply for a tag, and they have to hire a licensed guide or hunt with a a, a relative up there. You can't go up as a non-resident and hunt on your own like you can with most other species in that state. And um, you mentioned the limited opportunity here in Oregon. That's that's similar to all the other lower 48 states. And I might point out some interesting things about uh uh, mountain goat biology uh, to maybe explain why it's so important to be careful about how we manage that species. Yeah. First of all, uh, they were extirpated or eliminated from a lot of the lower 48 uh, historically, probably from uh, unregulated hunting. They're very vulnerable to overharvest, uh, and there could have been some disease there too. They're vulnerable to some of the same pathogens that bighorn sheep are that they can pick up from domestic sheep. Uh, the, the risk don't seem to be quite as high as with bighorn sheep, but that's still there. So Oregon lost all of its goats. So 100 years ago, even 60 years ago, there were no mountain goats in Oregon. And through uh, federal and state efforts and sportsmen's organizations, they were recovered in a lot of their, not, a lot of their former range here in Oregon. The stronghold being the Elkhorns, and then there's pockets of them in Hell's Canyon and the Eagle Cap Wilderness. And now the Strawberry Wilderness uh, near John Day, and and then this uh, fairly new population in the Cascades, and um, <coughs> oh, then the Lower Grand Ronde where Winaha flows in. That's another small population. But the thing about goats is a nanny she doesn't reach reproductive potential until she's four to five years old, and she may only live into her early teens or mid-teens, and. Um, so you think about a deer, by the time she's four or five years old, she already has at least three or four fawns behind her that she's produced, um, or uh, even more because deer twin a lot of times. Right. With goats, twinning is almost unheard of. It's really rare to see twins in goats. I think I've seen it once um, in eight or nine years of, of observing them. And um, But yeah, that late reproductive stage, state or age and then the lack of twinning uh, means it's a not as productive of a species as deer and elk and some of the other uh, wild ungulates and then there's a matter of um, the mortality factors in goats are quite a bit different than deer and elk and some of the other uh, game species in that predation pro- probably plays a role because you can get mountain lions that will target goats and learn to hunt them in that steep nasty you know, escape terrain where they like to live. But bear, coyotes, wolves, a lot of the other predators are not really that big of a factor, a mortality factor for them. Golden eagles will take kids when they're really small. They'll pull them off of rocks and, uh, you know, and eat them. But the main mortality factor for mountain goats are accidents. Falls, avalanches, rock slides, you know, boulders falling on them and hitting them. That's the main main thing that kills goats. Do and they then, do they winter well? Yeah, they're designed yeah. to winter, and it's they're just a it's a phenomenon like no other species I know of, except maybe things like snow leopard and polar bear. They're so equipped for cold weather and conserving energy with low nutrient intake. You know where most animals go down in elevation when the snow gets deep. These guys go up, and they get on southwest wind swept 
hillsides and they live off a of lichen. They're chewing off of rocks. They will drop down in the trees and eat lichen and litter fall out of the trees and things, but they they do a lot of laying around, a lot of conserving energy, and they have an incredibly thick insulated fur, you know, that just keeps them warm. Um, it's just an amazingly hardy animal. Hard winters can can be rough on them. I, I, I know in uh, the introduction on Kodiak Island, way back in the early 50s, they had, they had some hard winters on Kodiak right after that introduction. And I think those animals were still trying to figure out where their where the habitat was that they were going to, you know, take up residence. So that slowed the the population growth from the early 50s to the early 60s. Um, you know, but that said, I think most places where goats have been established, winters are not, you know, that big of an issue for them. Um, and so back to the whole mortality thing, most game species that are managed in this country are managed on a compensatory mortality basis. So we, you know, so many animals are going to make it through the winter. Uh, and we have this, you know, X number of acres of habitat to support, you know, so many animals. And hunting is considered not an additive factor, but just uh, one of the factors that's going to uh, take animals out, similar to disease, accidents, predation. It's one of those. It's not in addition to all those. And so, but with mountain goats, uh, if you're not careful on how you hunt those, um, it will be additive mortality because uh, they generally don't have a lot of those other factors killing them. So they're they're avoiding predation generally by the extreme uh, elevation and habitat that they uh, live in. Yeah, the terrain, um, and sometimes the, it's not necessarily elevation. It can be uh, you know slope, rocky uh, ruggedness. Because uh, the ones that live down in canyons, they still tend to live on the upper parts of those canyons. But the escape terrain is so important to mountain goats. Um, I've heard uh, those mountain goats referred to as specialized mountaineers and generalized foragers. Contrast that with bighorn sheep being generalized mountaineers, specialized foragers. And I think that pretty well fits those species because the goats are so well designed and agile. They're... Their bodies are deep, you know, up and down, uh, but they're laterally uh, narrow, so they can walk on on a cliff. Yeah, on cliffs. So are they sharing habitat with with sheep? Merging. Yeah. In some in some places yeah. they overlap. Yeah, overlapping. Yeah, yeah uh, but in my experience, they often segregate themselves, probably because of social reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, so you don't see wild sheep and wild goats together very much. Um, there's a couple places in Alaska you may see doll sheep near uh, Rocky Mountain goats but uh, generally no the habitats look very similar but you just don't see them mixed up very yeah. often at all um, but that escape terrain you know like most most game species or prey species the predators shape their behavior and how they avoid predators you know has some, been something that's evolved over eons of time and where a white-tailed deer, if it smells you or sees you, it may take off, and it's gone. With a goat, it may escape up into the escape terrain right next to it and turn around and look at you because it feels safe. It's, it knows you're not going to come up in here because you, you don't have the means <laughs> get to get there. up here and get me. <laughs> so you can imagine a rifle hunter, uh, it's not you know that difficult to get on a goat. It runs up into the escape terrain, stops and looks at you, and you shoot it. Yeah. With a bow hunter, it's a whole different uh, thing if you want to safely get to it and then safely retrieve it after you kill it. Yeah. Whole different whole yeah. different game. <laughs> but 
Yeah, goats are, are just, they don't seem to be that afraid of people. Even where they're fairly heavily hunted, they don't tend to run into the next basin. They will run up into where they feel safe, and that's when they'll settle back down. Yeah, because that's, that's what they've been doing for thousands of years exactly. before rifles. It, it's, it's worked with them <laughs> against bears yeah. and coyotes and everything yeah. else. So, yeah. Yeah. And so the, the importance you're talking about of as hunters harvesting them, that's where the education on what a nanny is, I mean, is that... Yeah. That's um, important there, right? Yeah. So when you take a nanny out of a population, uh, you're taking out some reproductive potential there. Um, and I mentioned that low productivity earlier. Um, and that's one reason states and, and uh, BC wants to focus our harvest on males, because it doesn't take a whole lot of males to do the breeding to carry on the population. Um, and sometimes you get your older nannies in a herd, they uh, have this memory of movements between uh, escape terrain, uh, different ranges that they use seasonally. And if you someone takes out that big mature nanny that has all that memory over time, the rest of the herd can be kind of confused for a while. And it's like they may not make it back to that best place to winter or that most secure uh, lambing ground or kidding ground. Yeah. And um so that's a, also a concern. I've heard that expressed by several biologists. Um, and so most states and provinces don't make it illegal to kill a nanny, but they encourage billies. Yeah. And Alaska has a really good uh, identification test you can take online to tell to learn the difference between a nanny and a billy. Um, are the are the physical attributes of the mature nannies similar to um, the males? Yeah, and. And at first, at first, you may think, "No, oh, this is going to be difficult to tell." But the more you get into it, it's not really that hard. Um, so, mature a mature nanny is going to weigh 160, 180 pounds, maybe, and she will have horns. The male, a mature billy, is going to be 250 to 350 pounds and also have horns. So, a mature male is about 40 percent larger than a mature female, wow. and so. If, but if you're seeing one individual animal out there and you don't have some comparison, you don't know if that's bigger than another goat or yeah. smaller. So yeah. Right. And then I think like maybe in October, I don't know how late the seasons are going, but I know like when you look at, um, you know, canines, dogs, a dog with a big coat, you know, he could look like a 100-pound dog and he might only be a 60-pound dog if he's got a big, thick coat yeah. on him. Yeah. And also uh, to see the external genitalia on a, a male mountain goat is a 100% sure way to ID okay. but you can usually only see that before he gets really furred up in October right. so if you see him in June July August even in early September and you get a view from behind you can usually see his testicles and okay. that's a sure thing but once you add six or seven inches of fur all over that guy that's not as easy to see um, but other things that will clue you in uh, as to whether you're looking at a billy or a nanny is uh, just the the herd composition or the group composition that you're looking at. Often billies uh, will only associate with younger animals and nannies during the breeding season, which is generally November. And so if you see a lone animal or a couple big animals that just appear robust, large animals to you by themselves, you know, I would be thinking billy first thing. If you see a group that's got some little guys in it, little kids and some yearlings, you're probably not going to have a male in there unless it's a one and a half or two and a half year old male and but you start looking at them all and you're like yeah i see these are the sizes tell me that those are kids of the year 
And then those guys with the little three-inch horns on their heads that are about twice as big as a kid's are the yearlings. And then those other ones, the adults, have fairly skinny horns. Their bases are and um, much smaller than what a billy would be. You know, you start putting it together, that's probably a, a nanny kid group. Mm-hmm. And uh, But the base of the horn is a real important indicator. If you get a good look at th- one through spotting scope or your binox, look at the diameter of the base of that horn and compare it to the diameter of the eye. And if you think that horn base is about the same size as that eye, then you're looking at a nanny. If it's almost twice as big as that eye, you're looking at a billy. And uh, and then if you get a front-on view, those larger bases on a billy's horns means the gap in between them is going to be much narrower relative to the yeah. diameter of the bases. If you have a pretty sizable gap between those horns, you're probably looking at a nanny. Yeah. And, um, and another thing, some of the yearlings and two-and-a-half-year-old goats can be a little more challenging because of their size differentiation hasn't happened so much yet. Um, but with horn growth on a goat, an interesting fact is they put on about 93% of what their horn's ever going to be in the first three and a half years of life. So the first year and a half is the biggest section of horn. That second year is going to be a sizable section of horn because they put on like growth rings, just like a bighorn sheep or a tree would. Yeah. And the third year, another fairly sizable uh, growth ring. But after that, the growth rings get really tight. And so if that goat lives to be 12 years old, that year 4 through 12, you might they might squeeze into about a less than an inch of horn growth. Oh, wow. So those growth rings are really close together, whereas those first three are boom, 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 you know, big, yeah. big growth rings. And so shortly after three years old, you get, uh, it's, it's much easier to start telling billies from nannies. Sweet. And... Before we get into your Alaska hunt here, like how is the population in the lower 48 going? Like I know there's some new conservation groups out there that go to Alliance and stuff that started a few years ago to, you know, help out with that stuff. How is the population going? You know, um, I guess I, I don't know a lot about some of the states, um, but my understanding just from working with, with biologists in other states is that goat populations seem to be pretty stable. Some places they're growing. I don't get the impression that they're expanding into new ranges very much. Um, uh, groups like the, well, the Mountain Goat Alliance, they have brought a lot of attention to the species. And they provide volunteer efforts to help states with surveys and those kind of things. And they have some good online tools for telling uh, billies from nannies and that kind of thing. So great organization. And... Um, but I can't say that it's a species that's growing by leaps and bounds by any means. It's yeah. a slow-growing, you know, a population, uh, and yeah, but they, but they seem to be so stable. Much habitat and they're found more goats in the lower forty-eight. They're right? found in like Nevada, Montana, Colorado. Yeah, you just named a couple. Washington. Some, yeah, you were nick, mixing up some states where they're native and where they're not. But okay. we do have them in all those states. <laughs> okay. So absolutely historically native through the northern Rocky Mountains. And then in the Cascades, we believe from Canada all the way down towards Sisters, three okay. three Sisters in Oregon. Yeah. Um, and then northeastern Oregon um, and, uh, and southeast Washington a little bit. Idaho, Colorado, um uh, now, Colorado, it's questionable whether they were native there or not. Um, I think the general consensus is they were introduced into Colorado. We don't, I don't think there's as good a 
historical evidence that they existed there. Okay. Um, same thing with Yellowstone, but on up into Canada and I mean, uh, and Montana, yeah, they were native in that northern part of the Rockies. They were introduced into Utah and Nevada, and you know they were introduced in a day when fishing game departments really weren't concerned much about native versus non-native. Uh, folks didn't understand or appreciate the uniqueness of alpine plant communities. And so throwing a charismatic game species like that up into some fragile al- subalpine habitat wasn't much of a consideration. Today it is. Yeah. And so that's why the states and the feds who manage the habitat have to do a lot of coordination, make sure before goats are moved around that it, preferably we should be moving them into places where they the plants evolved with that species and you know they yeah, co-evolved sure. so an interesting thing going on right now is the um, a movement toward getting all the goats off the olympic peninsula in washington and moving them over into the cascades so years ago goats were introduced to the olympic peninsula and you may know, know that it's kind of an island uh, habitat separated by the the valley that goes up toward seattle there and um we, we're not sure whether goats were ever native there. A lot of evidence indicates they weren't. There's no good evidence that they occurred there historically. And the Park Service that now manages the Olympic National Park, they uh, their legislation you know, basically says you're going to make an attempt to remove non-native species off Park Service lands. And 15 years ago, uh, there, was a, there was a lot of public opposition to moving the goats off of there because people like to see them. There was a human fatality, uh, I can't remember how many years ago, maybe five or six years ago, where a a Billy gored a guy in the leg, a hiker. I think it was during the rut, It was or early rut, and he bled to death. And um, And they rut when? In November. November. Beginning late October into early December. Okay. And then the Park Service uh, did a lot of public outreach and education about... uh, the uniqueness of plant and other wildlife species on that Olympic Peninsula, how there's some a lot of things there that don't occur anywhere else in the world, and that the goat is doing some damage to that habitat up there. And so there's been this shift in public opinion, and now, for the most part, a lot of people support moving those goats off of the peninsula over into the central Cascades of Washington. And the sportsmen, I think, have kind of shifted in that way, too, in that direction, because... They're really not available to hunters when they're on the park park service land. And a smaller proportion of them occur on the forest service land that surrounds the park. So there's not a lot of hunting opportunity. But over in the Cascades of Washington, where we know they were native historically, um, there's some gaps in the population. And there's some herds that aren't doing very well. And so we hope to augment those populations with the ones that are on the peninsula. And right now the uh, environmental impact statement's being developed and the coordination between the state, the Forest Service, the Park Service, the tribes, and all that up there, all that coordination is going on. And if funding holds out and the decisions made to start moving those, we they may start moving them as early as 2019, I believe. That's oh, sweet. So, anyway, that's, that's going to be a big project because there's probably 400 goats or so on there. Wow. But like I mentioned, their vulnerability to being overhunted, you can mimic overhunting by capturing and moving them out of there. So yeah. it would be not too challenging to set them on a trajectory to extinction on that peninsula. Yeah. And Have we increased, it seems like I could be wrong, it seems like we've increased a little bit of opportunity state side here in Oregon. Um, 
can you speak to that a little bit as far as what the future looks like for uh, the mountain goats here in Oregon and, and hunting opportunity? I can try. Um, you know, getting a state biologist on to do that would probably give you a more accurate explanation of it. But my understanding is the state has, in Oregon here has taken a really conservative approach. I'm, I'm not positive of the formula they use, but I think they'd want to harvest less than 5% of the population and focus that on the males. Um, but with, like, in the elkhorns, uh, taking that conservative approach for tag issuing over the years, the population has continued to grow. And then they go in and capture, you know, 20, 30, move them to a different place. Two years later, they do the same thing, and the population continues to grow. So it must be a, a matter of really productive habitat. Um, and I think between tribal hunting and, and, and sport hunting for everyone else, um, ODF&W has realized that maybe they can put a little more pressure on that population in Elkhorns without any ill effect to the population. And then with the expanding population in the strawberries, uh, they started issuing tags, I think, two years ago. And that's the first time since I've lived in Oregon that they've had that going. And then the herd in the Warm Springs on the Cascades, as they expand out into Three Finger Jack, Mount Washington, uh, Mount Jefferson, and a lot of that country on National Forest System lands, I imagine ODFNW will start, you know, considering hunts in that area. Yeah. So uh, as they start to re-inhabit old habitat, yeah, there'll be some I, more think, I think there'll be more opportunity. Now. Yeah. So as a... Um, habitat biologist are you ahead of the department as far as are you guys doing um habitat enhancement projects before these uh goats are being uh moved or you know is there is there projects that you guys do before the new populations move in or not really and because there's really not a need to this is one of those species that human management of land rarely affects mountain goat habitat we, we just don't I and mean, we have some grazing programs you know domestic livestock grazing that happens in subalpine habitats some not a lot um, but we don't log up there we don't do a lot of things up there the things that we as a land management agency do have to consider is if we develop uh, ski like skiing operations uh, backcountry uh, special use permits that will focus a lot of recreation attention in that country um, occasionally there's an issue where uh, like a timber cell may punch a road in to get up higher closer to the subalpine to access a timber cell and then uh, hunters tribal and otherwise now have easy access to those goats yeah. that before it took a lot of effort to get up there we've seen that in washington i've I heard of one uh, example of where the forest service you know allowed a road to go in and the harvest of the goats increased dramatically after that road went in. So those are the type of issues related to habitat that we we need to consider. I, I didn't think of that factor. So do our our uh, tribal um, folks here in Oregon do they have um, rights to to goats, and is that controlled? Each tribe that has hunting rights in in the different areas manage their own wildlife uh, programs. But uh, in my experience, we work mostly with the uh, Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation and the Nez Perce Tribe. And they have wonderful wildlife programs, and um, they coordinate with the state. Uh, 
they coordinate with us on things related to habitat and access and all, but as far as how many goats they wish to take, um, they work closely with the state to to negotiate how many goats they're they're going to try for. And, um, my impression is yeah, there are some tribal there's some tribal harvest of goats, but it's not as high as I thought it would be. And I think it has to do with the effort it takes to get to these things. They're just not an easy species. You don't just go out and you know, find yeah. them like you would a deer. It takes some effort to get up into their country, and fewer people are willing to put that kind of effort in. Yeah, so, for sure. Yep. So, obviously, goats are on your bucket list, and you do you apply for tags in the States? Just in Oregon. Just in Oregon. Yeah. And so you decided, what made you decide to go for a Kodiak? You had to apply for the tag? Yeah. So what started this hunt? Oh gosh. Well, we know you've been going to Kodiak for a while, right? So. Yeah. Yeah. This is my sixth trip, I think it was. So five previous trips for deer, and some fishing and duck hunting. And um, many years ago, I you know I became fascinated with the sheep and goat species, and always dreamed that someday I would love to hunt one or several of these species, but I never really thought I'd be able to because of my my standard of living, you know, I just, those hunts are generally more expensive. You're not a rich man. I'm not a rich man. <laughs> so, um, we're, 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 we're right there with you, Mark. <laughs> so you can relate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but with, if you draw us, if you draw a tag down here in the lower 48, it's, you can do it yourself and it's more economical to try. And I have a horse and I have friends with mules and all, so I could do it if I drew a tag. <laughs> but as you and know, and you mentioned before, the odds are astronomically yeah, low. One in a thousand. <laughs> what, well, before we jump into Alaska, what uh, unit would you recommend a traditional bow hunter in the state of Oregon? You know, he's probably, we're never going to draw, but what unit would you want to draw uh, to, to have the best chance with uh, the stick and string? So if I tell you the truth, every one of my TAO comrades are going to apply for the same tag I am, uh, and my odds are going to go to nothing. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're already at nothing. <laughs> Any of them you can draw. You know, I don't think there's a bad unit in in Oregon, personally. Um, Hat Point is a good one. Those are those goats are real homebodies. It's really steep, nasty country, but they you can get close to them. The Elkhorns, any of those hunts that fit your timing— I always look at what I'm doing that year and decide whether I'd want to go on one of the earlier ones or one of the later ones. Some people worry about, well, by that last hunt, they're going to be spooky. And no, their behavior is not really going to change from the first hunt to the last hunt because okay. it's really light hunting pressure. I love the Elkhorns because you can hike in. You don't need to pack in with horses if you don't, unless you want a big luxurious camp. Yeah, It's relatively easy backpacking in there. And there's a lot of goats in there, and I've been just scary close to several goats working in there, literally a few feet from them. Wow. What well, do we have? Two that are in October. I don't remember off the top of my hand yeah. head. There's I always put them for the October ones, just because. Not I'm hoping during elk season. It's not during elk <laughs> season, and I'm hoping for a coat on them. Oh yeah, and I will, I will point out there. I, I've seen some winters where you cannot access those goats by October. Yeah, uh, we get early snows up there, and it's well. I can't, I can't say you cannot, but it would be extremely difficult. And you're dealing with knee-high snow, yeah. and you can't see the trail, and that adds a whole different challenge to it. That's a different good dynamic. point. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So earlier hunts are better from an access standpoint. Later hunts are better from a hair standpoint. 
But as you'll see, if you look at a lot of goats in September, their hair has already started to grow, and they look really nice even with a short coat. Um, but so, yeah, shall we switch to the, yeah, the Kodiak yeah, thing? Yeah, so, so yeah. when did you decide to start planning this hunt and, and you know, break, give us the breakdown on uh, how this all came together? All right, well, seriously, planning it in the last three years. But 10 or 15 years ago, I was dreaming about goats and looking at, um, well, Bohunnington Safari Consultants, you know, they send a, oh, yeah, a brochure that. out every year. And <laughs> these goat hunts were like, oh, these are cheap compared to the sheep and some of the elk hunts. They were uh, yeah. $4,000, $4,500. Yeah. And I thought, I'm just going to save for three or four years and then I'll go. Well, three or four years later, they're 9000 bucks. Yeah. You know, so they kept staying out of my reach. And I realized a few years ago, I've got to just keep my my hunting pot uh built up keep saving my pennies there and apply for one of these hunts and one one of my flights out from Kodiak I think it was 2015 uh I always see goats on our flight in and out of deer hunting and I love that country and um I asked my pilot about goats and he said yeah if you uh, if you're serious about mountain goats uh Cole Kramer and Jason Bunch are two wonderful guides here and uh, he says you can't you can't lose with either of those guys. He said, and Jason he's flown with us a lot, but they're both really good guys. So a year later, I was working at the sheep show. Um, I had a Forest Service booth there talking to the public about bighorn sheep management on public lands and disease risk and those things. And on my time off, I was able to go visit with some of the other exhibitors. And I went to Roar's Bear Camp, their booth there, and I met a young guy, uh, bald headed guy, real stout. Uh, real nice guy and as we're talking about goats i look down at his name tag and realize i'm talking to jason bunch which is the one my my guy or my pilot had told me about <laughs> and so i said well jason willie told me if i ever want to get serious about mountain goats you're the guy to talk to and um he said uh <laughs> he says well i appreciate the the recommendation he goes out I'd, I'd be glad to take you goat hunting if we can draw a tag and i said well one kicker here I shoot a longbow, and I would really or a recurve, and I said I'd really like to shoot one with a traditional bow. And he paused and he said, "I'm game if you are." He said, "I've guided other uh, hunters to really close shots on goats with rifle, and with compound, but I haven't taken a, tra a traditional bow hunter yet." He says, "So what's your effective range?" And I said, "Really close." <laughs> he says, "The closer the better." He's like 30, 40 yards. I said, "No, closer than that." <laughs> And he says, you know, if you're willing to stick it out, then I am too. Uh, so the following year we applied. He helped me decide which ones to apply for. And uh, lo and behold, I drew it uh, this past year in 2017, which was actually the first year that I actually applied. And um, I had to have his, uh, you know, guide and outfitter number for to show the state that I had a, a, a professional guide lined up as a non-resident. And uh, I, I drew... I can't remember which choice it was. I think it was a second or third choice, which was a fly-in unit, which kind of, I was glad I did that. It increased the cost a little bit because you had a bush plane uh, trip, mm -hmm. but uh, a lot of the residents who would fly over to Kodiak, rent a car, and go hike into the, the walk-in units, I wouldn't be competing with all those rifle hunters. Yeah. If someone was going to be hunting where I was, they had to put the same effort as I am to get in there. Yeah. And um, so... Once I uh, 
you know, found out I had the tag. Jason and I talked a few times, and we coordinated fairly closely on equipment and things. He had a good gear list. He told me to go to on the on his website, and um, a lot of the gear that it was on that list are things I already had and um, tested. You know, I've tested it on work and play, and yeah. it's, it's gear that works. And uh, so I get up there, and uh, we decided I was going to be his first hunter of the year um, in mid-September. The The season opens, I think, in August sometime. But the hair on those goats, and Jason explained this to me on Kodiak there, he sees about an inch of hair growth a week beginning in late August. So there's a big difference between mid-August and mid-September. You're talking four more inches of hair in that yeah. one-month period. And so uh, I was kind of concerned, being your first hunter in September, am I going to be looking at really short-haired goats? He goes, no, they'll be pretty. You know, I can I can guarantee you that. And he was right. The goats were beautiful. And maybe they would have two or three more inches of hair by October or November, but they were nicely yeah. furred when I was there. And so I get to Kodiak, and um, uh, Jason picks me up at the airport, and uh the next day, we're getting our gear together, and I go to his, his shop at his house, and he introduces me to Brett Watts. And Brett is a, uh, I think he's about 32 years old, helicopter mechanic for the Coast Guard, taking some time off to be our packer. And we hit it off right away. And um, I, I just couldn't help but notice he was wearing the exact same thing I was. I mean, from boots, <laughs> gaiters, pants, shirt, jacket, hat. We had on the exact same clothes. <laughs> and I was like, uh, did you dress yourself or did Jason? He goes, a lot of this Jason loaned me. And I said, well, he's got good taste in clothes. <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, it's just, it's good gear that yeah. I knew was going to work and keep us, keep us dry and warm. And, um, so the next day we fly out, and well, actually, let me back up. As we're packing gear, uh, Jason said, "If you have a tent you want to take, uh, throw it in Brett's pack. He'll carry it." And I said, "Well, I don't want to burden Brett." I said, "How see do you if I can fit this wall tent there?" <laughs> <laughs> well, and a wood stove. <laughs> yeah. Well, I had taken a uh, an Acto made by Hilleberg. It's mm -hmm. a one man four season tent. I've had it uh, in some pretty harsh conditions before including middle of the winter time doing some work in northeast oregon and it's it's a small shelter but it's bomb proof yeah. and i had that thing and shelter on kodiak is so important from a safety aspect and i've always uh made taken great care to have a sturdy wind and waterproof uh shelter and some form of heat uh, and then a different place to do my cooking and eating and just for bare yeah. you know bare reasons well, uh, Jason says, you can take it, and we'll, we'll carry it. Don't worry about the weight. And I said, well, how do you do it? He goes, well, I've got this fly off of a two-person tent, and I have two aluminum poles. We put that thing up, and each of us put our sleeping bags in a bivy, and we get in there like sardines, and that lightens our weight. It makes us mobile. And I said, well, Jason, you're my guide. I'm here to do it the way you do it. I'm not going to dictate how, how we're going <laughs> to camp. So I'm going to leave my tent at home. I ended up leaving about 30% of my gear at his house uh, extra because he said we're everything we're carrying is going to be on our backs and we're going to take it with us all the time. Yeah. And so and I said, well, what about extra clothes? He said, <laughs> and he said, well, you take what you need, but no more. So it was literally two pair of socks, one pair of underwear, the pair of pants I had on, the shirt I had on, and then a jacket and my rain gear. 
that is it for clothes. Wow. I think I took one extra stocking cap. So I had a like a first light hat and a Sitka stocking cap or something. And um, then my sleeping bag and his bivy sack and my, my little bedroll. And uh, I'd never slept in a bivy sack before. But um, as we talked about gear and safety and all that out there, I realized Jason has so much experience. Um, I put a lot of trust into him because I, I felt like I could read him pretty good right off. And he knows what he's doing. He's the real deal. Um, I can't say enough good about Jason. He's actually uh, retired at 44 years old. He's a retired rescue swimmer from the Coast Guard. Oh, yeah, those and guys are He's a literal beasts. legend there. Anytime yeah. you mention his name to anyone that knows the Coast Guard, it's like, whoa, yeah, yeah. He's, he's royalty here. We, yeah, everyone yeah. has great respect for him. And um, so I, would, I didn't doubt his judgment in gear. Uh, but it was a little... A little unnerving as we're leaving your old tent. I'm, I'm leaving <laughs> my tent. We're shoulder to shoulder underneath this rain fly with about a six to eight inch gap all the way around, our feet sticking out the bottom. And uh, and I said, Well, where are we going to cook and eat? He goes, We do that right here, too. And uh, I said, Aren't you worried about bears? He said, Nope, I got a 375 Magnum land right there. Uh, and we've never had an issue. And we're eating Mountain House, so it's not a lot of extra odor like it would yeah. be with fresh food. But uh, so the accommodations were. Uh, rustic. Um, real hunting. <laughs> it was real hunting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and of course, I'm in the middle of these two guys. And uh, if I got to get up and pee in the middle of the night, I got to <laughs> climb over them in there. Don't worry about it. Just don't worry about waking us up. Just get out when you need to go. And yeah. um, so we, anyway, we get out there. We load up our packs. Um, those two guys were using packs that Jason made himself, uh, which he took wow. some ideas from several other packs. But they're very, uh, you know, utility based strong packs yeah. uh, i believe he had them on an external on external frames i was carrying a stone glacier like a 3300 mm-hmm. size that's, that's and, a great pack and it had all i needed in it my personal hunting gear what few toiletries i had one knife you know there's another thing you take th- your favorite three knives and you leave two of them back <laughs> at his house because i'm only carrying one yeah. I'm cutting down on weight and space yeah. and uh we get out there and we backpack from this high elevation lake that we landed on about four miles to this little mountain range that he says, this is a good, I think this is a good bow hunting spot. And we looked way across a few miles away. So that's still in our hunting area over there, but, and there's a lot of goats over there, but it's probably more suited to a, to a rifle hunter. And looking at that terrain and looking at where we were, I agreed that I thought we had, had picked a pretty good spot. And so we were scheduled for six days of hunting plus travel day on each end. And, um, the, the very first day of hunting, uh, it rained and it was foggy and you couldn't see very far ahead of you, but we saw goats. We saw goats right out of camp. Um, and I got close to a couple uh, nannies and kids or nannies and yearlings. And uh, that was kind of a confidence builder right there. And uh, the only other hunter we knew about that had been in there was a week before a resident came in and we actually found his gut pile and a piece of hide that they had left. And our pilot said, the only person I brought in here, and it was a, two men and two women, and they killed a goat, and I flew them out, you know, about four days ago. Okay. Other than that, he said, I haven't seen anybody in this country. And um, the goats acted like they had not been pressured or anything. And um, and there's no other wildlife in this. You're up so high in the, where the goats' uh, habitat is that you're not seeing other wildlife? Or Oh, some. I mean... Up there, we had brown bears up there as high as the goats. Okay. We, we saw a bear as soon as we landed the plane on the lake. 
this young brown bear walks across the hillside right in front of us. And we seemed to follow him all the way over to where we were camping. Every, okay. You know, several times we'd come over a rise and there's that bear. Same <laughs> way. And he had a very distinctive collar that it's a like a blondish collar in his fur, not a radio collar. But yeah. um, uh, typically that fades on a young bear after about two and a half years old. But this one was a... Jason estimated a probably a four-year-old bear, and it still had a pretty distinct collar, so we knew it was the same one. So bear, a few deer. I saw very few deer way up high, but looking down below us, slightly lower, I saw some deer, uh, Sitka blacktails. We had rock ptarmigan, uh, saw lots of those, saw uh, gray crown, rosy finches, some other songbirds and things up there, and some raptors. So there's wildlife up there. Okay. Just um, goats are kind of the master of that country, yeah, though. Absolutely. And, uh, they kind of dominate that country. Um, but, yeah, taking off with our packs, we all had reasonably weighted packs. They weren't incredibly heavy, but you knew you had something on your back. And I'll tell you, to look up at where he was going to take me was quite intimidating. It's kind of like chucker hunting. When you start at the bottom <laughs> and you're going to go way the heck up there. Well, this was that times about five. And it's one of those hikes where I thought, just don't look up. Just put one foot in front of the other. And eventually we'll get to where, where we're going. Yeah, one step at a time. <laughs> one step at a time. And uh, fortunately, for the previous couple months, I I booked up and down the hill behind my house. Every day after work, or usually right before dark, I would I would trot up the hill. It's about a almost a 1,000-foot gain on a pretty steep uh, hillside right behind my, out my is back that a, door. Is that a really a hill? thousand feet gain it's kind of yeah, it's it's more like 800 <laughs> feet vertical <laughs> vertical feet but it's That's a, a lot yeah. lives in northeast oregon <laughs> in the mountains yeah kid us <laughs> but i um you know when i first started doing that little exercise routine it took me 25 minutes to get up there by the time i was done it took me nine minutes to get wow. from my back door to the top and then i would just take my time wandering back down i used yeah. to take my dogs with me to get them some exercise but that definitely helped because i was at about the same altitude as I was, or elevation as yeah. I was in Kodiak. Um, so I was ready for it physically uh, and mentally, I believe. But if I had not prepared like that, I think I'd have been really, it really tested my lungs and, and thighs. <laughs> uh, and even though uh, Brett and Jason are very fit young men, um, they he said that I didn't slow them down. They were very patient. <laughs> we stayed at the same pace. Yeah. They didn't try to get in a hurry. And so we stayed together the whole time, the whole hunt. And that was nice that they weren't, you know, going ahead and having to wait on me, that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. And, um, and I asked him, I said, are you, wait, are you waiting on me just having some sympathy on the old man here? He said, no, dude, this is the rate we hunt. He said, Why, we're not in a hurry. Yeah. We know, yeah. I know where the goats are going to be. And, there's no reason to run up this hill if we can walk up it. And I'm like, all right, that works for me. So anyway, the the way the hunting went, we would, uh, Jason carried a spotting scope. I carried my bow. And uh, we all had binocs. And we would go up and glass for goats. And we saw some. We would assess whether there was a mature billy in there or not. And if not, uh, we'd move on and try to find another group. And... Uh, Anyway, I, I learned a lot from Jason. His his experience with being able to sex goats and age goats uh, comes from experience, from hunting and putting his hands on them, whereas mine comes from learning from uh, folks like Corey Heath and Brian Ratliff, some of the ODF&W guys that taught me a lot of that, and from watching them through surveys and all. Uh, but our skills tend to mesh really well, and I could tell right off he respected my experience, and I respected his. He didn't try to snow me 
you know, you know how it is. You can BS somebody that, you know, didn't know something about a topic. We both understood what each other knew and respected that. And I I really liked that. And, um, that's, that's pretty important. I mean, I know guys like us who aren't used to hunting with guides, we're a do it yourself kind of guys, but in Alaska, you're forced to have that guide. I'm sure that that was uh, a comforting to have that kind of relationship with your guide. It was, it was, um, I'll, do, I'll contrast that a little bit with a, a spring bear hunt I went on in Canada back in May. And I had a guide, wonderful guy, great experience, not a bow hunter. I was carrying my recurve, and um, he tried to tell me things about birds and trees, or I would ask him, what kind of tree is that? And he would say something. I'm like, he is so full of crap. <laughs> it is not even in that, it's not even in that same family. <laughs> but, you know, he thought he could just say it with confidence, and I'd believe it. <laughs> And I'm like, dude, I'm not that stupid. <laughs> and but Jason knew he wasn't going to pull any crap over on me, and I knew he wasn't going to try. So, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it was nice. And then our senses of humor all meshed. We all have kind of warped sense of humor, and um, <laughs> but it, it was a good match, us three. And um, <laughs> so as we hunted, um, I had a few close calls where I'd sneak up on a goat and peek over a rock and. Eight feet away, there's a, a nanny laying there, and I'd sneak back and go back and whisper to those guys, it's a nanny. <sighs> I was hoping it was going to be a Billy, because sometimes you don't get a chance to get a good look at them. You see a white butt, and it disappears, and the wind's right, and the distance is right, so you boogie over there, then you slip your boots off, or you get real quiet, and you sneak up and peek, and it's not what you're looking for. Yeah. But over the first few days, um, that was building my confidence. I bet I got less than 10 yards from a dozen goats, uh, but a lot of them tended to be females and young. So you're getting a stalk daily. Oh, yeah, multiple stalks daily. Now, the weather was crappy about half the time, so fewer stalks when that's going on. And are you spotting these from six, seven, eight hundred yards and then having to do the big J-hook? Usually not that far because this size of this mountain that we were hunting – the furthest I was spotting them was probably 400 yards. Okay. But a lot of them, 150, 200 yards. Okay. And the secret up there, we were trying to hunt from the top, mostly looking down. Mm-hmm. So you want to keep a really low profile. Right. You rarely will stand up and no skyline. broadcast your yeah your silhouette on the skyline. And um, so a lot of belly crawling, a lot of strategic placing of uh, you know where you're going to walk to keep yourselves out of sight uh, using the topography. And um, Jason was really good about that. And he would say, you know, if you go from here to there, make sure you stay below that rock because your head will be exposed to those animals if, you, if you're above that rock. And yeah. that was nice. So his experience was one of the things I paid for with a guide. Yeah. His knowledge of the animals and the terrain and uh, then the, the safety aspect in that fog. I literally would walk up and just a couple more steps, I would have gone a thousand feet straight down if I weren't taking my time and watching where I was going because the fog was so thick. And a lot of times we'd just have to lay down, sit there and, you know, and talk for a while to let the fog lift or move on. And um, so there's a safety aspect to goat hunting that you don't have with deer and elk usually. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was really in tune to that. And he also had good communications with the sat phone, uh, you know, in a spot type, you know, in reach type thing. Yeah. So, but anyway, um, I guess I'll get to the, the exciting part of the hunt. <laughs> On the fourth day of hunting, um, uh, it was really foggy that night and that morning. And as soon as we woke up, you could barely see outside. And Jason said, Mark, there's a goat up 
up the hill from the camp here. It's maybe 500 yards. It was way up there, but you could see it. And he grabbed a spotting scope and leaning outside the, the rain fly, he puts a scope on it. And he goes, it looks like a nice billy. Yes, he said, there's good horns on that thing. So over the next few minutes, it's starting to get a little lighter, a little lighter, where you could just see, um, and it was just going to get better as I, you know, if I went after this goat. He says, normally... I would go with you up there, but I see no reason to have more scent or smell or more sound than you. And he said, I trust your abilities. He said, grab your bow, put your boots on, and go up there. And then look back down here from time to time. And if he's moved, I'll try to let you know with, with some signals. I'm like, All right. And um, then I heard him tell Brett, he says, I would never do this with most hunters. I would be right there with him. Yeah. But legally, he was with me. I mean, we're right yeah. there on the same hillside. Yeah, that's but. Uh, he just understood my needs as a bow hunter, which I really appreciated that too. And so I grabbed, and I, on this hunt, I was carrying my 57-pound uh, High Sierra Fox recurve. I, I've hunted with the longbow for a long time, but back in the midsummer, I looked at my bow rack and I thought that old fox has not gotten any love lately. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's was a, that a uh, uh, Ron King built or uh, built by uh, Ron, Ron Fox? Ron King. Ron King. Yeah, yeah, Ron King. I've had it since I've had it. I don't know, 12 years or maybe 15 years. It's a beautiful bow, Bacote limbs on the front, bamboo on the back, Bolivian rosewood riser. It's a pretty bow, not too ornate, but just beautiful. You know his he work. Did, yeah, he does great work. And, um, yeah, I was feeling sorry for that bow. Like I say, it wasn't getting enough love. So, And it shoots exactly like my 59-pound Thunderhorn. I can literally take the arrows and just go back and forth, and don't I don't have to do anything different with my grip. Even though those handles are different, there's a little bit different speed, those bows shoot the same. The only difference may be that recurve has a little bit more punch to it, a little more speed. Is that a takedown? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the High Sierra is a, yeah. is a nice takedown, a three-piece where mm-hmm. the limbs yeah. bolt on. And so that's what I was carrying. I had um, a few wood arrows, some sure wood shafts, uh, but I also had some of the super skinny carbons that, uh, Brett Hahn. The Valkyrie archery system. Yep, the Valkyrie system with, uh, I think it's a 200 grain three blade head that he, mm-hmm. and I told him I would take those because uh, I'd be at high elevation trying to buck some wind possibly. Yeah. And those things at my range, it's very windy there in the Grand Ronde Valley where I live. And out shooting at 3D targets on my range at my house, sometimes I'll have a 25 mile an hour crosswind. And those little skinny arrows with the tiny fletches. I will look at the spot I want to hit, and that wind might pull that back to the side, but that point still goes where I was looking. Yeah. And so I had some confidence with that, and I ended up using those carbons on this hunt, um, even though I had some woodies with me. But uh, so anyway, I take off after that goat that we had spotted from our from our rain fly, and I start up the hill, and uh, there were not there was not much for landmarks. I mean, no big boulders. There were just some slight differences in the color of the lichen on the rocks, and uh, the change in the terrain just a little bit. And by the time I started up, that Billy had gone and bedded on the edge, so you could just see his back there. And he was overlooking a big valley uh, just to the south of our camp. And I get way up there. It takes me, I don't know how, 20 minutes or so. I'm picking my way, trying to be quiet. And then I find the spot where I think I need to turn right and go straight over toward the goat. And I look down at the tent, and I see an orange, an orange stuff sack that Jason had put a little rock in and tossed it outside the tent. And the relative distance between him and that sack tells me 
where he wants me to go. Am I close or am I far? You know, oh, is a great oh, system. That's a great system. <laughs> and uh, I won't go into the details of it, but he has a blue bag and a and an orange bag for different for different purposes. And nice. it's so much more simple and effective than trying to give hand signals. Yeah. Um, it, it, so and that's the only time he had to give me a signal there. I knew I was on path, so I go. I keep getting closer and closer. The hillside I'm on is slightly convex. So as I walk, more and more of where that goat's going to be is revealed to me. And eventually I look up and there's hair at about 20 to 25 yards away. And he's bedded down, facing away from me, and I can only see the top of his back. And I can see the horns, too. I thought, oh boy, that's a nice billy. (laughs) So being a stubborn, traditional bow hunter, I thought I can get way closer than this. (laughs) So I get to about, I don't know, 18, 17 yards, somewhere right in there. And I start taking off my boots. I'm thinking, he still has no idea I'm there. The wind is in my favor. And he's relaxed. I'm going to take my boots off and get to about, I think I can get to about seven or yards or so, and then put an arrow on my string and just wait. And he will stand up eventually, and I'll shoot him. Well, I get one boot off, and I keep looking up. Every time I loosen a string, I look up. He's still still snoozing away there. I get the second boot halfway off, and I look up, and he is standing up, staring right at me. I'm busted. (laughs) One shoe on and one shoe off. One shoe on, one off. I must have made some noise that I didn't realize. I scratched my pant leg or something, and he looks at me for for a few seconds, kind of inquisitively. He's like, what the heck are you? And then he bounds off the hill, and I slip my other boot back on, I trot over there, and he's about 40 yards away now. You know, not running, but walking, and he looks back at me like, yeah, you ain't getting me today, pal. <laughs> then he disappears. <sighs> and I let out a big sigh. But man, that might have been my opportunity. And all I got a couple of days left to hunt now. I get back down to camp, and um, those guys were they were saying, that was the most awesome thing. He said, you are right on top of that goat. Why didn't you kill him? And, you know, Jason had told me, do not shoot a goat laying down. They're so yeah. muscular, and they have such strong bone structure. It, and the way they're built with their big hump, it's not an animal you want to try to shoot in its bed. It's just... That's a recipe for, for losing one, I think. So and, every, I was, and every all the vitals are pretty forward on them, aren't they? Uh, kind of, yeah. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. You, you'll find a lot of animals that have a hump on their back, back. like that tend to have forward, forward more, more forward vitals, yeah. just as a general rule. Um, but they are a very stocky uh, built animal. And uh, so I was going to wait till it stood, and I was going to get a point-blank shot. But anyway, they were like, that was really cool. And, um, well, we hunted all day that day, and... Uh, I could tell they were starting to look at the rifle. I'm thinking, well, Mark, <laughs> and actually they, they asked me later, They are you going to, actually Jason asked me, how long do you plan to stick it out with the bow? Because, you know, you can take the rifle. And, and I said, I jokingly said, well, to the last half of the last day. He said, really? I said, well, we'll see. <laughs> and the only way I would have considered a rifle, using the rifle, I guess, is if we got weathered out the entire time. And it's like, we got a window. The plane's going to pick us up later today. you got a couple hours yeah. to hunt. If yeah. that was the case, I might have shot one with a rifle. But I told him from the beginning I wanted to do it with the bow. So not too long before dark on that fourth day, uh, we were walking down this ridge and uh, just off one side of the ridge. And we see some nannies and kids. And it was a pretty good-sized group. We couldn't see them all. And one of them busted us. I think one of our heads popped up or something and, they stood there and stared at us from 40 yards away and uh, started acting a little nervous. And so we backed back over the hillside. They were still standing there. They didn't run or anything. And uh, Jason says, 
Pentagon and I are going to go back down the ridge on this side, drop off behind those goats a couple hundred yards from the direction they came, and Brett, we want you to walk down this ridge another hundred yards or so and then pop up and let them see you just to see if they will turn around and go back the way they just came from. So I thought, sounds good to me. And another thing I liked about Jason, he had lots of ideas on how to do hunts. Um, of course, with the rifle, it would have been over the first day because, you know, we yeah. saw Billy's, we could have shot. But with the bow, he realized we're going to have to try ambushing, stalking, putting them to bed and stalking, uh intercepting them he was open to all, he was open to all kinds of ideas every tool in the toolbox and this tool was the nudge them in your direction mm-hmm. tool mm-hmm. and uh so <laughs> he and i go way back down uh the opposite side of the ridge and we sneak over we drop down the hillside to about where we thought same level of those goats were and uh 15 minutes later or so uh we hear hooves and i look around this boulder and here come goats so it worked like like clockwork uh, Brett had shown himself down there, and they turned around and just were casually coming back by. And we had nine goats to walk by at less than 20 yards. Oh. One yearling pokes his head around a rock five feet from me and looks me and Jason right in the eye. And, boy, that little goat's eyes were, like, huge. <laughs> He's like, what the heck is that? And even he didn't run. He kind of trotted a few steps and then hooked up with the herd and kept there. going. But we had several that were six, seven yards from us that walked wow. right by couple nice nannies, but I didn't want to shoot a nanny in this kid yearling group. Um, I would have been happy with one if, if that's all I could have got, but uh, we let those walk. I could have shot, I think, almost any of those nine. Mm. So we go back up and hook up with Brett, and it was like, dude, that worked like clockwork. So that was perfect. And we had seen a couple billies earlier in the day on this same hillside. And it's a big hillside with lots of little nooks and crannies, but Again, Jason's experience with this area comes into play. He says, "Those billies, I don't think we, I don't think we've scared them out of here. They've got to be on this hillside somewhere." He said, "The only place we haven't looked is that big old rock right down there, and there was a huge rock. I mean, like the size of a small house, perched on the hillside a couple hundred yards down from the ridge." And he said, "I bet they're underneath that rock." And I said, "Jason, you told me you didn't want me to kill one on this hillside because it's so steep, and it'd be tough to get one out of here." So you really want to go down there? He goes, I said, I want to go and see if they're under that rock. And he said, you stay here. I'll go check and come back and tell you. I said, all right, whatever you think. So he goes down, comes back up a few minutes later with his thumbs up. He goes, those two billies are bedded right underneath that rock. (laughs) You got to be kidding me on this whole island of Kodiak. And you knew where those two billies were going to be, you know, just he pinpointed them exactly. So we, we get Brett and we say, all right, we're going to try this again. It worked a while ago. Let's try it again. You go down to that next ridge and you go down and show yourself. But give us time. We're going to sneak down the other side of this big rock where these goats are bedded. And um, the wind was perfect and it was raining and it was it was blowing. It was a, a pretty bad weather day. Um, and that's why those goats were tucked up under there in the shelter, you know, just getting some relief from the weather. So Jason and I get down there, and it's really shelly, so every step you're trying to not just slide down on your butt and trying to be quiet. Fortunately, the wind and the rain was uh, was hiding our sound some. We get closer and closer, and I whisper to Jason, I'm afraid to go any closer because another few steps, and those goats are going to be able to see us. They're right around the corner from us. They had to have been. And uh, we get set up there. I take an arrow out of my quiver, put it on my string, and... uh just a few seconds later, 
ears and horns appear about four, less than five yards from me. And I could tell by the attitude of the horns and the ears that it was curious. It wasn't spooked, but it was curious and kind of a little alarmed. And I put a little tension on the string, and the next thing I know, this goat just appeared and looked right at us, and I came to anchor and released. And I saw my arrow disappear behind the shoulder and clink into the rocks on the other side of him. And he wheeled and went back and disappeared where he came from. And I felt Jason's uh, hand on my shoulder, and he said, that's a dead goat. <laughs> and uh, he gave me a high five, and it's like, man, I can't believe all this effort oh, came awesome. down to just those few seconds, you know. Yeah. And uh, so we, we go up, and we see the two goats going across the hillside. The one I shot was lagging behind a little bit. We could, but with that thick fur, there wasn't, like, blood squirting out. Yeah. That fur soaks up a lot of mm-hmm. lot of blood, kind of like a bear, you know. Yeah. And uh, I see Jason. They go right, or not Jason, They uh, Brett. They go right underneath Brett where he was standing and disappear. And then Brett comes over and hooks up with us, and we go up top to where we can look down and try to see the goats. And he said, that was really cool, guys. It's when those things saw me, they stared at me a second. Then they stood up, and they started to mosey in your direction. And I've heard of guys yeah. using that tactic on mule deer. That's uh, awesome. And he, you know, no radios, no hand signals, yeah. nothing. Um, I refuse to use radios for any actual hunting. You yeah, know, yeah, I don't. Yeah, absolutely. In not. my opinion, that's not fair. So, yeah. I like the fact that we were able to communicate and and then each person do their part to to make yeah. it happen. So, and there's a chance I could have snuck down there by myself and shot one, yeah. but I think uh, that plan just worked nicely. And so anyway, we watched the watch the goat. Uh, his buddy takes off the other goat that wasn't hurt and disappeared over the next hill. And the one I'd shot, he starts to stagger and he falls into the hillside. And I said, all right, guys, I'm going to go up and grab my pack, which is a few hundred yards up this ridge. And you got, if you want to watch the goat, because we thought he was going to die right there. Yeah. I went up and I got my pack and I came back down and I see Brett. He's got both hands on his head, like saying, oh my gosh. And I get down there and he's like, I don't think you want to see this. And I said, what? <laughs> he goes, your goat's falling. And he's, I think it stopped now. And Jason, and that wasn't even looking at it at this point. He goes, I bet he's not stopped yet. Look down below that snow. And I looked down there in the fog. He's still uh. falling. He he rolled about, I'm guessing, a thousand feet down wow. of shell. And he hit a patch of ice or snow and took off like a rocket. And then oh. hit the rocks <laughs> below that and kept rolling. And I was just disgusted by the whole thing. I don't know. This moment of joy went to... Uh, Panic. Yeah, panic. <laughs> yeah. The horns are going to break off. The meat's going to be beat, beat all to crap. The hide's going to be ruined. But yeah. they're such tough animals. You know, he took he suffered some damage, but not a lot. Yeah. Uh, the meat was good. The horns, I might have lost a little bit of sharpness off the tips of the horns, but yeah. um, they didn't pop off. His face got pretty banged up in the fall. But And so later Jason says, well, there's a few things about this hunt that are first for me. He says, well, it was my 61st successful goat hunt wow my first traditional bow hunter the closest shot and the longest fall (laughs) 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 well i like all those first few but that last one i could do without and um you know then we had to make a a difficult decision because it's right at dark and the goat we couldn't see it from where we were now it disappeared into the fog way down there and it was raining and we had didn't have our tents our our uh, tent fly and sleeping bags our camp stuff we didn't have it on our back that day it was about a mile and a half or two you know back Uh away from where our pickup point 
which was four miles away total. And uh, he says, we could get down there and probably find your goat and take the guts out. But then we have to hike out of that and go all the way back to our to our yeah. camp in the dark in fog and rain. He says, I don't think that's wise in this terrain. I said, are you proposing leaving the goat overnight? And he goes, I don't think we have a choice based on safety. Yeah. And I said, I've never left one overnight on purpose, you know, and because yeah. meat can go bad so quickly. And he, especially on an animal that's got a really insulated hide like that. Well, the rain and then the fall kind of matting up the fur uh, with the dirt. Yeah. Um, it wasn't as effective insulating as I guess it would have been otherwise. Yeah. So if you can, you might guess it was a really long night. We decided to leave it and hike all the way back to our camp. First thing the next morning in the dark, we packed up camp and started hiking in the dark. Uh, got up to the top. It takes us about an hour from from where we were camped, where we had some drinking water, to the ridge, and then down the ridge, and then down to find the goat. Because we still had not seen where it finally, its final <laughs> resting place was. And, you know, that night he's he did everything, they both did everything they could to kind of console me. And he says, you know, I'll make a deal with you. He said, if a bear gets it tonight, I'll take you hunting again, you know, for no pro- for no charge. And I was like, really? Nice. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that. <laughs> and, uh, You're like, okay, I can go to sleep well, now. Okay, yeah. <laughs> no, it's, you know, now. <laughs> it's like, you know, we, we did this with the bow, and the meat is real important to me. It's not just about a set of horns and a hide. I love game meat of all kinds. And yeah, absolutely. If the meat's spoiled, it's that's really going to taint this experience for me and i and he goes i understand and i know you appreciate the game and the meat but it is what it is and our safety is more important than than an animal at this point and so it was a long sleepless night almost like the feeling you have when you hit something and have to go back and try to recover it tomorrow we knew it was dead just didn't know whether it'd be spoiled or eaten by a bear the next morning yeah well we get down there and it was quite a treacherous hike from the ridge down to where we thought the goat was and jason actually walked past it and was maybe 150 yards further, and I happened to look uphill, and there's my goat laying about 60 yards straight up in this avalanche chute. So I hollered at Jason. I said, it's here. He goes, really? And I, I said, yeah, up here above me. So we went, walked up there and um, took some pictures and uh, assessed the damage. Was uh, he in the snow? or No, it was below the snow, snow patch. There was a long, skinny snow patch, a narrow snow patch that followed this avalanche chute, and it was couple hundred yards below that thing but um we started working on it uh it it was so steep we literally spent 20 minutes at least 20 minutes making a shelf out of rock wow so we just started excavating and so you'd have a place to work on it it, you know jason's bigger than that bigger than that guys it's got to be bigger it's got (laughs) to make room for two of us with our knives and the whole goat and we don't want to you know, be on such a narrow little shelf, you're about to fall off of it. So we spent quite a bit of time and built this big platform of shale rock, rolled the goat onto that, and that's where we processed him up. And um, I could tell the meat had no odor to it other than what, you know, meat would smell like. And he says, this is real promising. There's no green, there's Mm -hmm. no off color to it, there's no off smell to it. He said, I think we're good. And I said, I sure hope so. Well, as it turned out, it is good. I've had a few meals off of it, and goat meat's pretty tough but most recipes if you use a crock pot yeah. cook it long enough it's going to tenderize a little it curry yeah <laughs> a little curry <laughs> um, so i didn't lose any meat um, sweet and uh then the pack out of there it's pretty arduous um 
those each of those guys, we weighed our packs when we got back to town. Each of them had 100 pounds, and I had Jeez. 57 pounds. Jeez. They were going to carry all the goat meat, and I said, I can't let you guys do that. Um, throw a quarter, at least one of the front quarters between my pack and my frame yeah. and, in addition to my gear and stuff. And then... Um, so I felt like I was contributing, <laughs> but I was so thankful for those young guys' strong backs oh, with a hundred pounds on there. Cause that, that hide being soaking wet, oh. full of dirt and water weighed probably 30% more than it would have if it had been fluffy. And yeah. is the meat similar to domestic goat or I think so. Yeah. yeah. I, I love domestic goat. in flavor. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually, the first meal I had was the tenderloins and they were good. I just, I cooked yeah. Uh, sauteed those and they were they were tender but i've had a couple of really the worst cuts like uh the shanks some right. of the neck meat and i uh, cooked that with vegetables and stuff in a crock pot crock and it pot. was really good Sweet. so i'm looking forward to trying some more recipes yeah. with this goat and yeah. i will probably tenderize everything with a you know meat tenderizer yeah. just to make sure but all my experience with eating other people's goats is they're tough as shoe leather yeah, yeah. Um, oh, that sounds like an amazing adventure Oh, it was. Um, well, the adventure's not over. We were hiking out of there, and um, I look up the hill, and there's a pile of fabric. And I thought, I wonder if that's a person that's laying up there, like a body or someone's gear or something. And Jason's like, I don't know, it kind of looks like a tent. I said, well, I'll run up and get it. So I drop my pack, and I go up, and there, sure enough, it's a tent that's all mangled and torn and poles still in it. And I bring it down, and Jason kind of chuckles. He says, yep, some people... Uh, set their tent up in the wrong spot. And uh, (laughs) I was up here hunting a couple or scouting a couple years ago. And in the middle of the night, I heard a tent blow right over the top of my head. (laughs) I could hear the tent poles and stuff. Like a kite. Just like a kite. (laughs) And he says, yeah, you know, at at these sports shows and all, people are always coming up uh, wanting to talk gear with me and get my opinion on gear. And they'll tell me stories about, yeah, I had such and such tent, but it blew away. He said, my standard response is, uh, you set her up in the wrong spot, did you? <laughs> he said, that normally doesn't go over very well. But he had all kinds of little sayings that kind of kept the kept the mood light, and uh, uh, we were laughing the whole time, you know. So anyway, we get that goat and our camp packed all the way back to the pickup lake and then the, called in to our air service about a pickup the next day. And they said, well, call us first thing in the morning and tell us what the wind's doing at that lake because – they're calling for a, a front coming in, and you may have to pack it back to a different lake. <laughs> and I thought, great. <laughs> and so he was going over like five different options. Uh, Terror Lake is four miles that way, and we got a really steep hill to go down. Then there's Middle Lake and Upper Lake and the Lower Lake that are this many miles away. And depending on what the weather's doing, we're probably going to have to leave here in the morning and take everything to one of those. Well, Sure enough, the next morning, the wind was adverse for a takeoff and landing at that lake. So we told the folks back at Andrews Air that we were going to move to what what we call the middle lake. Um, And we went down there, and it's barely big enough for the beaver to take off of. And uh, we get there, and so this is packing everything else another mile and a half back (laughs) the direction we came already the day before. And we had, so we spent an extra night there. And then on the sixth day, the plane was able to come get us. And um, at this, at this middle lake though, uh, it's, like I said, it was barely big enough. And the pilot uh, knew we were going to walk down there, but he didn't know we were already there. And he comes around the head of that lake. It was so exciting. I look up and I'm literally 
15 feet from his floats as he came right over our heads. And since we were right under him, he couldn't see us. He lands out there in the lake and gets out, stands on his pontoons and starts calling for us. And we then he sees us over there and uh, taxis over. And it started raining. The wind started picking up. And he backs all the way up to to where his tail was hanging over the bank of this lake. It takes off. And I could tell he's fighting it. I'm in the front seat, in the right seat. And I look back at Jason, and Jason has this wide, <laughs> wide-eyed look on his face. And Willie is fighting that plane, and we get off, and it does a couple jogs that leaves your stomach in your throat, you know. Oof. And he says, we used all she had there, boys. <laughs> well, I'm glad she had enough. And uh, then to top off that, we looked out the off the left wing, and there's a big old brown bear running right along beside us. Oh, wow. And he tilts the wings. That's pretty cool, isn't it? And so we get back to Kodiak and uh, take care of my goat and everything. And that was just, yeah, that wrapped up, uh, to me, yeah, one of my favorite nice. hunts of all time. Um, it was exciting. It was interesting. It was fun. Um, uh, on some of those days when the weather or a blown stalk got me down, uh, Jason and, and uh, Brett's attitude just kept me up because they were so positive they had positive attitudes there was nothing negative about the trip you know yeah. with those guys they That's could awesome. take anything and turn it into do you want to do you want to plug who they are yeah what's their outfitting well, service jason bunch uh has his own um business and i'm trying to remember the name of it uh it's kodiak wilderness adventures or something like that okay. but if you if you were to do a search for Jason Bunch, uh, okay. Mountain Goat Hunting Kodiak, you'll find him. Okay. He also does some kind of subcontract work for Roars Bear Camp, and that's why I was visiting him at the sheep show at Roars Camp. Okay. So he's got his own business, but he also guides for Roars. Sure. And Roars is one of the Sam Roar uh, and his father. They have been, they're one of the longest running, possibly the longest running guide service on Kodiak now, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, very reputable uh, group and so either of those uh, and so what Jason did when he put me in for three hunts two of them were his guiding area and one of them was Roars and we drew Roars so I was hunting under Roars under Bear Roars Camp, Camp but with Jason with as Jason my guide and, guide. and uh, either way y you can't lose but some of the hunts are backpack in so you drive to a trailhead and you walk anywhere from five to seven miles up into the up into the subalpine and hunt like that or you do one of these fly-in hunts if you get those units. There's no way to drive or hike to the ones we were at. Yeah. And, um, Dude, so you get, you, a, you get a hold of him, and you have to apply for that in, de in December. In December. The deadline. Yeah. So. Yeah, Dude, and awesome. you find out in February what the results are, I think. Did you spot on your way uh, out mini Sitka Blacktail? I heard that the island is hurting in population because of a winter kill last year. I saw very few deer, and um, I gave myself an extra week, and I went deer hunting by myself after my goat hunt. Uh, and, and killed a buck with a rifle. Um, but there were very few deer. And one reason I did use my rifle is I was seeing so few deer. Um, I had my recurve with me. Uh, and then I talked to the local biologist and others who are familiar with the island, and the northwestern part of the island got hit really hard last winter. So that island was was a perfect, spot, perfect uh, situation to hunt last year because they had gone for four or five winters where they had not had much die-off at all. It was pretty easy winters. And then last year was a hard one. So personally, if I were to go anytime soon, like in the next this year or next year, I would hunt the south side of the island. Uh, but I'm really 
probably going to wait three years yeah. to see what happens. Um, saying that, I'll probably end up there this year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even unless, I just like unless to play you decide so to plan a hunt. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> but, that's uh, no, like number one on my bucket list but, to get over there and hunt those blacktails. Uh, they did lose a lot of deer last winter, though. Yeah, I'd heard that. I talked to some guys that hunted it this year, and yeah. they were able to uh, pull some bucks, but they said it was a lot more difficult than in the past. Well, the south end of the island, down by Lo- Olga Bay in that country, people were stacking them up. Uh, I heard of rifle groups you know, killing 25, 30 bucks with a group of hunters. And so that's where you would want to go if you were to go soon. But I would avoid, and my favorite parts are the north and northwest it'll, part. Of it'll that. rebound right there in the yeah, next three it days. Should. It should. Yeah. Right? It'll depend on how hard winters. the winters are. Several winters in a row can really keep it depressed for a long time. But one winter, and then you have two or three years of recovery. And I, I can't remember if I mentioned on our earlier podcast talking about deer, but uh, the majority of bucks that make the Boone and Crockett minimum on that island are four-year-old bucks. So it doesn't take a long time to get a mature you know, yeah. large racked buck on that island. Right. Um, but you just need a few years for those younger bucks to get those years on them. And well, get your get your uh, bottom <laughs> back there and create some more uh, hunting adventures <laughs> so we can get you back on here and talk about them. I'd love to. Uh, that's awesome. Well, we, we really appreciate you taking out your time and meeting up with us today, and uh, we look forward to uh, doing it again in the future. Thanks for having me back, guys. Thank you very much, Mark. Thanks again for joining us on the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean. Leave us a review and enter a chance to win a dozen arrows from Sherwood Chaffs and Addictive Archery. Check us out on social media, Facebook and Instagram. And always keep the wind in your face, pick a spot, and shoot straight. Thank you.